0: May God bless all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen. Amen. You may have noticed we didn't include verse 21 this week. Next week, or next time I get to preach, we'll be starting in 20 and 21. We're slowly unfolding the whole argument. So stay tuned. The big theme of these verses, if we focus on them, is reconciliation. In the next verse, we'll talk more about how that's accomplished. But this introduces this concept, and the word is used here more than any other place in the Bible, reconciliation. We know what that means, right? When, when, when two parties are reconciled, the, the fighting's over and they, they, they shake hands. Uh, I suppose one of history's most famous feuds. Yes, I'm gonna mention these two families. History's America's most famous feuds between the Hatfields and the McCoys, you've heard of that? Probably uh, younger generations don't hear about that. It's not in the headlines anymore, but there's a true story. Two families, two American families in West Virginia, right near the Kentucky border uh, in the late 1800s were fighting and it wasn't, oh, we don't like them. There was violence, murders, a couple dozen people died in the years following the start of that feud. Apparently, it was started all over a pig, or two pigs. It's, it's fuzzy how it started. But it ran for over 150 years, this feud, and, and perhaps there's still some ill will in the family trees. Some historians say that it was partly over a woman, as well as the livestock. Well, you know what? In 2003, apparently the feud ended. 80 members of both these clans from the Hatfields and McCoys, they gathered, there'd been some movement, they gathered, they had an event, and they signed a truce. They actually had a written document, and they signed it. And part of what they said, maybe it's just Bible Belt talk, or maybe it was sincere, they included this sentence, we ask by God's grace and love that we be forever remembered, as those that bound together the hearts of two families to form a family of freedom in America. I guess the feud is over between the Hatfields and McCoys. The the feud or the, we can't use that word, the estrangement, the broken relationship that mankind has with God is much more than a feud. And it is not simply fixed by calling a truce. And the world needs to understand that. Paul writes to these Corinthians and to us to help us explain the importance of proper reconciliation and the only way it's accomplished. Relationship troubles on the horizontal are related to our relationship troubles on the vertical. We need to be reconciled with God in order to be our best selves on the earthly plane with other people. This text is about reconciliation. So let's take a look. Let's take a look. And our our first heading, as we unpack these verses, is that our great salvation, all of it, is from God. It is from God, and. And we need a salvation from God. As Paul starts, we we looked at verse 17 last week, and that's what he points to when he says, All this, being new in Christ, the old going, the new is coming, all this is from God, who who through Christ reconciled us to himself we need reconciling because what's implied in this verse and in the bible is that we're estranged from god you've heard the bible language in adam all die we have sinned we uh, we need to be born again we have to undo the present status our nature isn't a blank slate it's a it's a soiled stained slate you don't have to teach a child to say no our inner sinful bent is that way. It's self-oriented, not God-oriented, and we need to be changed. That's that's a logical starting point. If you're going to talk about getting reconciled, you have to acknowledge that there's some enmity. Uh, Barnett says that reconciliation implies that we were alienated from God. Obviously. Alienation, he says, may be defined as the absence of trust and respect between two persons. It is a a word most often applied to broken marriages, to industrial disputes, alienation between management and employees, or antagonism between nations. Alienation implies enmity, division, hostility, and, and a loss of communication. You can tell when a husband and wife are not reconciled they're not talking to one another there's no communication in so many ways that's the way we are with god unless god brings about the reconciliation you see god is the aggrieved party in the Hatfield and McCoy feud they both probably had things they had to confess and make up, and they they needed to approach each other. But God is blameless in this situation. He made us. He gave us this world. he, He set us forth to serve him, but we rebelled and went our own way like sheep. We've all gone astray. Isaiah not only mentions we all like sheep have gone astray, but when you get to Isaiah 59, verses 1 and 2, if your Bibles are open, check it out. Isaiah 59 verses 1 and 2, it describes where the problem lies, and it's not with God. The prophet says, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. The problem is with us and our sin. Uh, The last century, James Denny commented on this passage, and and he made an astute observation that still works today. In fact, it's only worse. He said, uh, many, especially in modern times, that was the 1800s when he wrote, in modern times assert that the estrangement is merely one-sided, Man is alienated by God from sin, fear, unbelief, and and God reconciles reconciles him when God prevails with him to lay aside these evil dispositions, trust him as his father and his friend. It sounds half right, but the one-sidedness isn't that we are the stubborn ones and all we need to do is unchange ourselves. No, we need God's work in us. God's wrath is present. God's holiness must be satisfied. God can't just wink and nod at our sin and say all is forgiven. God must be satisfied for our sins must be punished. The solution is the cross. Let's see how Paul explains it here. Back to verse 18, all this is from God, new life in Christ, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. What is Paul's emphasis when he says all this is from God? He's saying God saves sinners. He's saying it is a work of God alone. And perhaps this is a new word for you this morning in our outline, monergistic, salvation monergism it's now a very excellent christian website with resources for believers monergism.com or whatever i've looked at it for decades just a little ministry what is monergism what are you what are you talking what's this word mono meaning one and erg for work our salvation is the work of one God saves sinners. That's my theology. That's the Bible's theology. God saves sinners. We don't have to make it any more complicated than that. Although we know more because God tells us more. But it doesn't change the truth. And this is what Paul is pointing to. To these Corinthians as they're a bit confused and false teachers are adding to the gospel that he preached. We'll come back to that thought. He said it's the work of God. It's the work of God of one he says God is not counting our sins against us let's read on in verse 19 that is in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself this is the work of God God's the uh, the, the subject of the verb here he's working it out not counting their trespasses against them it's from God, not counting. We deserve punishment for our trespasses. God knows and will hold us to account for every idle word, every sinful deed. Whether you acted on it or not, he knows your thoughts and the intentions of your heart. You can't just have a facade and fool men. God's not fooled. There will be accounting. God is just. Every sin will be punished on the sinner's head or if they can find a substitute on their savior's head. That's what Isaiah 53 really explains. But he says not counting their sins against us. It's God himself who has figured out a way to remain just and be the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. And you may be thinking of Romans 3. That's the language there. It's interesting in the world, some have observed that in the world when there's... uh, 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 alienation, let's say in a marriage or even in a workplace, they bring in a mediator, a third party, who can be fair to both parties and get them connected. My friends, the story of the Bible is that God himself does something about the problem. In his wrath and in his justice and his holiness, he could have struck down Adam and Eve and called it quits. But he didn't. God thought it better to, to bring good out of evil than not to have redemptive good and grace at all, said Augustine. You see, the gospel is about how God reconciles us. We need to read these words carefully as we look at them today. As Kent Hughes points out, we must not miss the thrust of this passionate plea because it is not reconciled yourselves to God. That's not what it says but it says, be reconciled, that's the passive voice. Be recon- not reconcile yourselves, but be reconciled by God. Receive God's offer of reconciliation. Let God be the agent of salvation. There's a big difference there as we'll see today. In Romans chapter 5, it points out that our sin is not only not counted, but it is conquered. It is. Romans 5, and the whole chapter is helpful, but here's just verses 10 and 11. Paul would write to the church in Rome, and it's in the Bible, For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received reconciliation. It's a joyful thing for God to work in us to save sinners. We passively receive and and, and don't make too much of the passive. It's just that you don't accomplish your reconciliation. God brings the salvation. And that's the, the way Paul's explaining it. Receive this. Be reconciled by this saving God. We alluded to Isaiah 53, but listen to how the transaction unfolds. Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. But he, the Messiah, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It should be the Christian's testimony. Not, I got saved. I did this. I do that. I believe. And many of those sentences are true. But the Christian's testimony should be, God saved me god's saving work came to me he opened my eyes he opened my heart to understand what the cross accomplished and who christ is and what he has done for me while i was yet an enemy god loved me and sent his son to die for us monergistic god is in the driver's seat god saves sinners and further here it's a reconciliation it's not just the forgiveness of sins or the conquering of sins, it's amended relationship, isn't it? Paul uses this term here quite a bit, and he uses it elsewhere in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 7, when he talks about marriage, about being reconciled, it's about fixing the relationship. Not just about removing the offense, but going beyond removing the offense. There's a, there's a shaking of hands and there's a joining of hearts. We're not only forgiven. But we're loved and adopted by God. God gives us himself. You will be my people and I will be your God. I will be your father and you will be sons of God. Jesus will shepherd you. You see, it's much more than not simply being killed for our sins and escaping hell. Whew! There's a positive, the reconciliation. That's what Paul emphasizes here, the mended relationship. It's not just a truce. The dividing wall. think of North and South Korea. There's been a long-standing truce there. But the wall's still there. the minefield's there there. the armies are still there. There hasn't really been a reconciliation. But in Christ, Christians are reconciled to our Father in heaven. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. The Greek dictionary defines reconciliation, the term used here, as a re reestablishment of an interrupted or broken relationship. An exchange of hostility uh, for friendship and fellowship and a friendly relationships. This is described in the first part of Ephesians uh, 2, we're saved by grace the faith alone, and then it talks about the consequences of this mended relationship. Ephesians 2 beginning in verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, see there's the estrangement, it's not talking about where you lived, it's how far away your relationship was, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of, the, uh, by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 2.14. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. And there Paul's talking explicitly about how Jew and Gentile are made one in Christ. But we read on. He has broken down in his flesh, the flesh of Christ, the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man, Jew and Gentile, in Christ in place of the two, so making peace. And he might reconcile both of us to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace. To you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, to the Gentile, to the Jew, sinners one and all, peace. For through him he ends, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. What Christianity offers is peace with God, amended relationships. And this is the work of God. It's the gift of God. It sounds too good to be true. Wait, I'll I'll, I'll clean up my life. I'll start going to church. I'll do all the do's. I'll try to avoid all the don'ts. You know, it's hard. And then maybe God will like me. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. For God so loved the world. He didn't wait for you to clean up your act. He didn't try to just say, oh, stop thinking so poorly of me. You know, the concerns that James Denny had. It's not just that we think God's mad. He is mad. He doesn't like sin. Sin will be punished. But he says, have peace. Receive this reconciliation. And indeed, the troubles on the horizontal will be affected by our peace and the vertical. The church of Jesus Christ includes Gentiles and Jews. There really shouldn't be a separate messianic congregation. I know that's going to cause trouble for some people. There's one man in Christ. And what you see God accomplishing by the fruits of the gospel on the horizontal is because God is mended our relationship and we now are friends with our father in heaven and love him and he loves us reconciliation amended relationship but we need to press on because paul doesn't leave it there he doesn't say look at how beautiful reconciliation is isn't this wonderful this is indeed good news to share but paul's writing to these ephesians writing to these corinthians and he's explaining his ministry and why he does what he does and what we should all be doing. So there's another shoe to drop here. Let me start again in verse 18. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Amen. And, uh uh-oh, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. What have we been given? We've been given the ministry and the message, the ministry of reconciliation. The first clarification, the first footnote before we go anywhere is he's not asking us by our blood to reconcile anyone. Christ has done that. There's one cross, one savior, one salvation. God does that for us. But the ministry of reconciliation, think of the word service. It's related to the word deacon here. It's it's the description of that serving. We have this reconciliation that we might take the message and make it manifest to the world. And it's something that has been given to us. We've been entrusted with it. Do you see it in verse 18? It says that we've been given but the the parallel, the uh, follow-up word is entrusting to us in verse 19, the message of reconciliation. Something precious is going on here. We see it in the life of Jesus all the time when he interacts with someone and tells them how they should now go, go give thanks, go and tell others what he's done for you. There's a logical order here. We first experience the grace of God And then we tell others of the grace of God. And yes, this happened to Paul. And when he says we, you think primarily Paul and his associates. Where in today, people think, oh, that's for pastors. Pastors have a ministry. Pastors and preachers and evangelists, they're the ones that talk about the gospel, right? Well, by implication, this is for all of us. We are saved to serve. We are given a new heart, new mind, new eyes, and I would submit a new mouth to tell others. We're saved to serve. Just give you two examples. Uh, In John chapter nine, if you don't know the story of John chapter nine, when you hear that address, you ought to know who lives there. John chapter nine. You know about the blind man of John nine? If not, open your Bibles. I don't hear any pages turning. I can't hear digital pages being swiped, but that's my problem. Um, in John chapter nine, we read about a blind man. I'm not going to read the whole story this morning, but I want you to see. This was a man that was born blind. Jesus corrects the disciples. It wasn't his fault. You know, he didn't sin, his parents didn't sin. That's just how he was born. In fact, Jesus says that he was born blind, that the works of God might be displayed in him. God wants to display the works of God in people? You betcha. We're created for his glory. And when he does work in us, he wants it to be for his glory. That's another sermon. But here's the story. The blind man encounters Jesus. Jesus uh, anoints his eyes. He washes and he regains his sight. Verse 8. The neighbors and those that had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is he. Others said, No, it's like him. But he kept saying, I am the man. What is he saying? He's saying i once was blind but now i see He's saying yeah i was that guy yeah i was alienated from the world i couldn't see it i couldn't act, interact with it. i couldn't communicate and it's a picture of man's spiritual condition but he constantly says yeah this is me when you're born again you don't just start hiding you say yeah i am different i am that same guy but now i'm different course the Sadducees brought him in verse 13 they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been formerly blind now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus had made the mud and opened his eyes so the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight and he said to him he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see that's pretty deep theology don't don't try to unpack that Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they said to the blind man, What do you say about him since he's opened your eyes? He said, He must be a prophet. He says, This is a man of God. And they call in the parents and they interrogate the parents, and the parents say, Ask him. Uh, You know, he's old enough. And so they called him in, verse 24, for the second time. They call in the man who had been born blind, and they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, talking about Jesus, whether he's a, a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. He bore a testimony. And that's day one of his new life. I'm sure he learned more who this Jesus was because Jesus would come to him and explain to him more. But from the beginning of your experience of the saving grace of God, your being reconciled to God, walk as children of light and bear a testimony. It's been given to us. That's the way God works. He saves us and deploys us. God put Adam in the garden and said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, do what I've asked you to do, this is all for you. And do it for the glory of God. And they drop the ball on that. God sends a second Adam to create, a, 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 as it were, a race of beings that would serve God obediently. And in Christ, we are these new creations dwelling on earth to obey God and to make him known. We're entrusted with a ministry with the ability to preach. And, and we could go on with other examples. Acts chapter 4, I'll let you look at that one on your own. They drag in Peter and his associates and say, these are just fishermen. How is it that they can have this ministry? Peter had just ha- healed a lame man. He says, how do you do that? And Peter says, oh, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Oh, wow. And, you know, they're blustering. He says, it was in the name of Jesus of Nazareth that that man rose and walked he's explaining that salvation our help is from god this said, well stop talking about jesus peter said whether it's right to obey you or not we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard so if you have been touched by the grace of god you receive i believe a commission to speak of that here the term back to our text the term is ambassadors for christ verse 20 therefore Paul writes, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Ambassadors. That's a pretty lofty term. He doesn't just say messengers or errand boys or newspaper hawkers. Here you, hear you, read all about it. Jesus changed my life. He uses this term, a very important term in the ancient world. We We see a lot of use of it that's that's really spread near and far, we have brand ambassadors. You might be looking at Instagram and why does the person always hold up this product in their family photos? They're a brand ambassador. In the ancient world, it was practically a sacred term because you would represent another known authority or office and what you said came with the authority of that office. It's like the president might have an ambassador to a country but in the ancient world, it was a highly esteemed term. Paul grabs that term and that picture to talk about the Christian life. But, but they're just fishermen. Peter doesn't, he doesn't smell like an ambassador, but he's an ambassador. You're an ambassador. I have never been to seminary. I, I, I don't, I haven't even read the whole Bible yet. I'm a young believer. Keep reading. But ambassadors, it means you have been given status, and I will use the word authority to say, Thus says the Lord. Jesus said, and we read it in our Bible so we can tell others no one comes to the Father but by Him. We're ambassadors. It's a bold analogy, but it is a reality. Derek Prime says uh, look back on your own conversion and new birth and see how God used Christian people to speak the life changing truth to you. May have been your mother, ambassador mom, may have been a Sunday school teacher, Mrs. So and so or Mr. So and so maybe a preacher, famous or not so famous. You know, Spurgeon, one of the greatest human preachers in the history of mankind. Nobody knows who was preaching the day he was converted. It was just a deacon, a nameless Methodist deacon. But an ambassador. I would pause to point out here, what greater privilege can you have with your human life than to be that ambassador whether you're a housewife or an engineer elderly or a teenager eloquent or tongue tied if you've been reconciled with God you can say I was blind but now I see it I don't know everything about Jesus I I can't explain the end times I can't draw you a chart but this i know and the method can i point out the method here as well it's entrusted to us it's entrusted to the church we are ambassadors for christ god making his appeal through us god makes his appeal through us what if the sermon isn't any good people you know we we start to panic i'm so imperfect And you know, the workshop we preachers had this last week, we all come in and we're trembling because we're going through peer review. I can't just sit in the the workshop and say in the Greek, it says they all know the Greek. Well, most of them do. There's no bluff. It's all, where is it in the text? It's a humbling process, but this is the process God is pleased to use. He gives us this ministry. Paul's already talked about that, hasn't he? Just a couple chapters back. Chapter 4, therefore we have this ministry by the mercy of God. We do not lose heart. Chapter 4, verse 7, we have this treasure. He knows he's been entrusted with something precious. We have this treasure in jars of clay. He's not joking around. It's not a, a guffaw line. Paul did not think he was much. He knew his limitations, he knew his humanity, but he says, God puts the treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Yeah, you can meet a really smart evangelist or uh, somebody who can answer every question and he he can definitely parry all the the rejoinders and objections and he's very persuasive. But as Paul writes here, as he wrote back in 1 Corinthians chapter one, uh, the power does not lie in the preacher or the messenger. Where does the power lie? To show that the power belongs to God and not to us. Monergism. God saves sinners. You're, you're the ambassador. But the authority isn't strictly yours. It's from him. And the message is from him. And the power is from him. So that ought to change the whole way we look at evangelism. And the whole mission of the church yeah, we don't have a band or we don't have this or that, bells and whistles in our ministry program. We have the power of God attending to the message he's given us. And you can change the world. You can see your neighbors and your co-workers completely changed. Paul said in 1 Corinthians, we Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful, not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. It's a message and a ministry, it's a privilege we've been given. I want to just move quickly through these points and get to our closing. Your salvation. You see where Paul's going here? He says, we've received this. But then he he speaks directly to his audience. We are ambassadors for Christ. Verse 20, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20. We are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So he's teaching about that. But then what does he say? We implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God he's preaching he's making that gospel call to the Corinthians and to us he's writing to a church Paul you're writing to the Christians and you're preaching that they should be writing yes if you've read your Bible if you paid attention to the parables of Jesus the church is a field And the wheat grows the right grain, but there's also weeds. There are sheep and goats that will need to get separated. One of our instructors reminded us in this very room just a couple days ago as we're talking about preaching the gospel. He says, don't fool yourselves and keep thinking that everyone in your church, everyone in your building is born again. We, we don't know. We see a lot of good, encouraging evidences. I know most of you, and I'm encouraged. But do you know God? Is this reconciliation yours? Do you have the fruits of it, peace with God? And are you like the blind man opening your mouth to speak of what you know? If you don't have that peace with God, if your heart's not yet born again, you're still seeking and God hasn't quite worked in you God sometimes works over time they say on average a person needs to hear the gospel seven times before they give their assent to it that's just a statistic but if that represents reality we need to keep telling the gospel again and again until it brings about the reality within Paul makes his appeal, be reconciled to God. Certainly there were some in Corinth that needed that. There are certainly some hearing today's sermon that need that. But it's important to hear that and to remember it's something that's received because number one, you cannot reconcile yourselves to God. The be reconciled is that passive voice. You must plead with God to save you. You may say, okay, I'm ready to get saved. What do I need to do? You need to call upon God because only God can save you. Only God can reconcile you. And you see, Paul is writing this to the Corinthians. Let's remember the whole picture here. He's writing it to the Corinthians because they're false teachers, false apostles that have come in and said, you know, Paul didn't tell you the whole story. We might still need to do some of that Old Testament stuff. Moses is more important. than..." And they're going on and on. They're adding steps. They're encumbering it as if salvation was our work and not monergistic, synergistic. Yes, there's that command, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who is at work in you. Our sanctification is a process. We cooperate with the Holy Spirit, but listen to me clearly. Your salvation, your justification, your forgiveness is a work of God alone. Man must be born again, and that is a work of the Spirit. And Jesus reminded us the Spirit moves where he wills, like the wind. You do not control the Holy Spirit. You can pray and plead. But when the Spirit comes, that's when a man and a woman is born again. You cannot reconcile yourself. Paul's trying to, to correct those and call them to repentance in Corinth. And it's still in our world today. You see, Paul had been away from Corinth and over time those teachers had come in. In the history of Christianity, the gospel became encumbered as the the church of the Holy Roman Empire got entangled with the the government of Rome and, and theology suffered. The gospel was less clear and the mechanics of the Roman Catholic church moved away from the simplicity of the New Testament message. If you're not familiar with Roman Catholic theology, they now have a system, and it is often described as a sacramental system, and you need to be involved in the sacraments in the life of the church to be saved. They've encumbered the gospel, and they talk about reconciliation. Do you know there is a sacrament of reconciliation? There are seven sacraments. I'm not asking if you know them all. I always have to look them up. The seven sacraments of the Roman Catholic Church, they're organized into sacraments of initiation, getting into the church, baptism, confession, and the Lord's Supper. That's the way they do it. Uh, That's where they put it. And then sacraments of healing, some ongoing sacraments, the sacrament of reconciliation and anointing of the sick. And then there are sacraments of service, holy orders and matrimony. It's the sacrament of reconciliation that you probably haven't heard of by that name. It goes by another name the sacrament of penance. And if you do your penance, you can be reconciled. That's not what we read here. It's something we receive. Yes, we need to be repentant. But in the subtlety of the, uh, the Roman Catholic theology, it's clouded and cluttered. They say there are four steps in the sacrament of reconciliation. We need to feel contrition for our sins and and the change in our hearts. We need to confess our sins to a human priest and we need to receive and accept the absolution. Go and say this or go and do that and be forgiven. It's encumbered, it's hidden. When Paul talks about reconciliation, he says it's an offer, it's what God does for us. Christ is our high priest. To him we confess and find that he is faithful to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Paul's need to bring clarity to Corinth is still present in the world today. We need to be clear about reconciliation being God's work in Christ and how it is received rather than produced. And the final observation here is the urgency Paul just doesn't say it. He says, we implore you on behalf of Christ. You've heard of Christ. You've heard of the cross. You've heard of one who was unjustly accused. You've heard of his sinless life and his virgin birth. He kept the law in every measure, but they've crucified him. Why? Why? As Jesus said in the gospel of Mark, the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. To take our sins, and this is where we'll go next time, so that we might receive his righteousness, that we might receive reconciliation. And Paul speaks with an urgency saying, uh, for the sake of Christ, on behalf of Christ, knowing what you know about Christ, be reconciled. Receive that reconciliation. I would encourage you to pray today if you've never asked God to bring you through the new birth, to forgive you, and to give you peace with Him through Christ. You can't pray, Lord, I've really cleaned up my act. That's not how it works. I'm really, 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 really sorry. That's not how it works. Lord, I'm a sinner. I need Christ. Thank you. Well, I was yet a sinner. Christ died for me. So in conclusion, I just want to emphasize these three things. God saves sinners. It's not religion that saves you. It's Christ. God saves sinners. Secondly, God is reconciled to us still. I don't know if I left that word on the outline we handed out. Still, S-T-I-L-L. Because here, the tense of not counting their sins against us is still present. If God has reconciled you, he is still reconciled to you. Your sins are still covered. You may commit a sin and need to confess it, but they are still covered. There has been a change in your status and your inheritance that will not be undone. If your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, if you've been reconciled, God will not let go. There's rejoicing here. Peace with God. And as a final exhortation, remember that that's not where it ends. We've received this message in this ministry. We know what God wants us to do. May we do it. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this New Testament letter and these verses from Paul to an ancient church and to us describing what you've given us in Christ. We thank you, Father, for being clear that it's not just forgiveness. It's, it's fullness of relationship restoration. The enmity disappears. It's more than a truce. It's life and peace and joy and life everlasting. Father, may we awaken to all that you've done. May we stop diminishing this great transaction. It's such a treasure. May we be faithful with what we've been entrusted with. Father, bring many to yourself by the gospel, the good news, and those who you bring, turn us around and send us for your glory to tell others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.